People like games. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a very special, cool guest on Osama Dorius, the lead designer at Blizzard. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, just a clarification, lead content designer, lead just content specific designer. content designer. Uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, thank you. Let's let's get these things started because I always know there's like the intro awkward moment of everyone trying to get their feeling in. So, what game are you playing right now? Oh, okay. What was it called again? I think it was called The Case of the Golden Idol. It was a game that my friend Rami Rami Smell suggested to me and uh, Fozia on on our podcast. And uh, neither me or Fozia had played it. And he said that it was comparable to Oberdin, maybe better. And Return to the Oberdin is one of my favorite games, like especially of the last decade, like definitely in my top 10 of the last decade. And so by him saying that, it, like I dropped everything and I picked it up. Um, sadly, I only had time to play it yesterday at midnight. And I, <laughs> I spent like, yeah, I started at midnight uh, because I had a, a family day the rest of the day. and. Hours went by. I was supposed to like, you know, try it for 30 minutes, see how yeah, it's like, course. go to bed, wake up the next morning and keep playing or something. And I just lost track of time. I played it for a couple of hours, maybe three hours. Uh, amazing. Like so far, it really hits the same notes as Oberdin. Um, the is it better? Is it worse? First of all, I'll wait until I finish it before I, I, I absolutely you know chime in on that. Um, one thing for sure though is it hits the same notes. Um, and the only thing I will say is that it's oh, a follow up to an a, an amazing innovative game like uh, Oberdin, even if it does end up being better. Yeah. Uh, you got to give props to the, you know, the first game that came up with a formula. See, see this is funny because I'm going to ask you this question because I was talking to my friend about this with God of War because yeah. we we're talking about God of War Ragnarok and, you know, as some people had the criticisms, oh, it has a little bit of a, a DLC-like quality because mm -hmm. of, but the, the problem with that becomes, if you, like you're saying, you do some sort of revolutionary inventive the first time around, a sequel can only build upon that. So building upon that is still good and great in its own way, but it inherently can't be fundamentally as transformative as the first one. So how do you even scale the two? Because one can't exist without the other. I would even argue that it shouldn't be. It's, it's too big of a risk for it to be transformative because the chances of people, of, of if, it, if it like diverts too much from the formula, uh, even if it's good, the chance that uh, there are a large segment of the of the player base is going to be allergic to the changes simply mm. because it's different. It's too high. Like you really have to nail it out of the park with any major changes to the sequel. Um, well, it's safer to do something that builds on what you already established. It's actually smarter in a, from a business point of view to build on what you've already established and just do more. Is there a pivot point? So when I think like God of War 2018, they had a, a, a time between where you have the value of the IP and now you want to adapt it. And so say you were to go back and pull it back in, you're going to fundamentally transform it, but now you re, you know, solidify people into this form. You can't change it again. Like, is that yeah. how it is? You you really need to have a sense of a finality to it before you can try something else, and even then, it's always going to be risky. Like uh, now that the the this well, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but Ragnarok kind of you know wrapped up a story like that completely. Yeah. Like you know, they they, they could still yeah, continue exactly, but it yeah. wrapped up that arc that started in in the twenty eighteen, yeah. which surprised me because yes. I was expecting a trilogy because people just do trilogies these days. It feels um, like the thing. 
Yeah, right. So when 100%. it wrapped up, I'm like, oh, well, this is a pleasant surprise. 100%. Um, but like it, it gave the without again without spoiling it gave the possibility the potential to have like spinoffs or other types Absolutely. of stories from it and and just that the the new god of wars going to a different mythology to a different region also creates this uh precedent that you can do that again you could find another mythology you can go there and 100%. kill those gods like you know that that's kind of like the theme then you could like, this is a new thing at that point yeah. even if it th carries over some characters you're starting a new story you could come up with new mechanics you could follow you know we could either continue with similar characters or start with other ones then that is the the, the when you're managing expectations of people who are playing the game yeah. their expectations aren't that it's going to be more of the same then if you do keep the same formula they're going to make it feel too much like a dlc as you're mentioning so this uh, is a great question for you as a, as a content designer. So when you're thinking about the content in, say, the initial game, you're thinking about an audience that just is zero, right? So you're trying to introduce it. So now you've introduced it. Now when you're playing Ragnarok, when you're doing your design on, say, Ragnarok, theoretically, how much do you have to shift that mindset of you're not introducing this, you have elements built in, it's almost how much do you presume that everyone will have played the first one who's picking this one up? And does that limit change? And even your own career as you have designed things, working on things that have lineage how does that work yeah in general people in my in, in my line of work what we try to do is push uh, the the boundaries as much as possible within preset constraints and there are reasons for those constraints constraints sounds like a negative thing but it's not yeah. uh creativity comes out of constraints yes. uh, also the potential the ability to ship a thing comes out of constraints as well if you if you have a zero constraints and everything is is bespoke 100 bespoke and not built on preset tools or systems yeah. then you're not going to have time to create a lot of content or even yeah. enough content uh, because everything has to be created from from scratch so these constraints they, they come in different forms I don't, I don't have a list that i'm reading from so it's not like a but like a couple that i could mention um, one of them is, is what is the game that we're trying to build? So generally games are built on pillars. Um, the, the game, it, like it's statements of the game we're trying to build is this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's statements of the game we're trying to build is not this. I, mm -hmm. We see this less often, like the anti-pillars, but they still exist. And generally what you want is a statement where if you're saying the game is this, another good game can say the opposite. Mm -hmm. Because you, it, it's not useful otherwise. If you say our game's going to be fun, that's not a pillar because no one's going to come and say our game's not going to be fun. But if you say something along the line of our game is going to lean on exploration, another game can say ours is linear. And that is not a bad statement. It's okay to be linear. It's okay to deal with like open world and exploration. Both these are, are you know, they need to be developed more, but they're the, of the seeds of pillars. Yeah, so once you look at the this starting point, uh, like this, these content pillars within that, those are your constraints, but within that, you could have a lot of creativity. You could, okay. you're trying to surprise a player, you're trying to do new things, but you want to maintain it. That's what, th that's actually what the job of directors are. The directors are, their main job is to create these, these sandboxes, these constraints, yeah. and to allow creative people to play within them. Yes.
So they come back and they're, a good director is not going to say, I like this, I don't like this, because their personal opinion is not what matters. Yeah. The, a good director is, um, uh, my friend Tanya Short, she's um, a designer at Kid Fox Games, brilliant person. She, her analogy is my favorite that she's ever used. She says um, that when you're, a lot of people working on a game together, it's like you're making a bowl of oatmeal. Mm -hmm. And every single person who's working on it is making a flake. So you need one person to have a holistic view to make sure it still looks like a bowl of oatmeal. Because everyone mm -hmm. is hyper-focused on that one flake that, or multiple flakes that they're making. They don't see the big picture of it. So the person who's the director of whatever subject matter, because you have you know, multiple directors on, on the bigger the team is, their job is to set those boundaries at the beginning. Our flakes are going to be between this size and this size, between this tone and this tone, you know, this kind of thing mm -hmm. without with about this ratio. These are these become your content pillars. This is the kind of oatmeal that we're going to make. And then at the end or at the end during production several times, but especially at the end, they're going to have a big look and say, oh, we have too many big ones. We need to shrink them a bit. Yeah. Not. Oh, that's not the flavor I like. That's not their job, really. The, the, like, if you really want to get the best creativity of your, out of your team, let them be creative and build what they want. But just give them these constraints so everyone is driving in the same direction. Everyone's going in the same way. 100%. That actually reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is, uh, if you ever heard, a camel is just a horse designed by a committee. <laughs> I've never heard that, actually. Yeah. That's great. It's the same thing, right? You have someone to keep saying, no, this is the horse, and then yeah. everyone else. So, yeah, totally. So then, actually, funny enough, that's also a secondary question would be, like, do in the process, so when you set those constraints, is there a usual sequential process of let's start with a smaller constraint and keep building it wider? Or is it, like, maybe midway through the process, you guys are like, oh, man, this, is, this isn't going to work. Mayday, mayday. We got to shrink it or expand it. And... Is it, is it different on every project or is there usually iterative builds? It's definitely different on every project, but um, normally the, the path that I've seen that most projects follow is you start wide and you narrow. So you know. uh, a lot of times at the beginning, you're building prototypes and tests to see what kind of content uh, works, what's fun, what fits the pillar, you know, what what you, you can do. And then yeah. you have way fewer constraints at the beginning. Okay. And the point is you're trying to answer questions. Um, you know, are we, is this working? It, does this feel good? You know, uh, it, does this answer, like solve the problem that we're trying to solve? Do you categorize questions under the pillars? China. Sometimes under the pillars, sometimes under different subjects, but you definitely have like a list of uh, questions that, that are unanswered and you're trying to see, um, you know, different ways to get across it. Like in, in, in previous roles, I was an economy designer and main is the main question that you want in an economy is this engaging throughout, like the player still wants to engage in this economy. And yeah. economy, for people who don't know, that doesn't necessarily mean like your, re like your uh, monetary resources, an economy can be anything like uh, any kind of resource that the player has is part yeah. of an economy, right? As a, um, as a fellow political science person, using a word as like a economy as like yeah. the subject of the whole. So, okay, yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and it has a lot of link with progression. So, like, mm -hmm. you know, do, do you feel a sense of progression from these systems in play? So, initially, you may start off with way more systems mm -hmm. and then cut the ones that solve the same issue. Oh, this this is redundant. Sometimes you start, you do the opposite. This is my preferred way of working yeah. is uh, you start with the fewest systems possible. And if there's a problem that's introduced that cannot be fixed within those systems, you introduce another system to try to address that Absolutely. and add complexity as needed. Uh, both work 
I think the other way is chaotic, but yeah, you know, both work. Uh, but like trying different systems and laying them together is the only way to know. Um, there's a framework of design, and stop me if you've heard this before, but the MDA framework is kind of like game design 101 that's taught in schools. Um, there's a solid foundation for how to think about games. Um, and it separates things into basically three layers. There's the aesthetic layer. And when we mean aesthetic, we're talking about from game design. So we're not talking about like the visual aesthetic. We're talking about the feelings aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Like what, what are players experiencing? What are they feeling? Um, then we have the dynamic layer and then we have the mechanics layer. And you have to kind of explain those in, uh, in reverse. So mm -hmm. the mechanics are the rules that you put into play. Mm -hmm. You can design a specific rule. You can design a second rule that interacts with this rule, and then you mm -hmm. can keep designing a game this way. The dynamics is what happens when these rules come together. That is something that is, if everyone believes that they can predict, but the reality is you cannot. The more complex your rules are, the more chaotic the dynamics end up being, mm -hmm. and the more you, uh, difficult it is to predict, and the only ways to actually put them into play and see how the dynamics are. And the last one is the aesthetic, where you have no control over it. It's how the players feel when these dynamics are in play. Mm -hmm. uh, I could give you a concrete example. So let's say we're working on a first-person shooter. It's a multiplayer shooter. Mm -hmm. We want players to die and then respawn. So mm -hmm. this is a rule. The mechanic is um, players will die. When they die, after a certain timer, they will respawn. Mm -hmm. We will set spawn points where they can respawn. Uh, and once they respawn and they die a certain number of time, or if someone accumulates a certain number of lives, the game is over. Mm -hmm. So do we have enough rules here? Sounds like we do. What do you think? Okay. So. okay. I guess so. So if we we're playing in this, we set the rules, we put it together, we're like, good, my game is done. I can I can't see any problems with it. This is gonna work because you know, other than the combat, the systems, whatever, we're talking about just a respawn mm -hmm. system. The respawn system is complete. You have respawn points, you die, you you, you resurrect, you we're fine. We don't need more than this. So what ends up happening initially is where do you respawn? Is it mm. You know, random? Is it closest to the other players? Is it furthest from the other players? Well, initially it ends up being random. That doesn't yeah. turn out to be fun because the dynamic that comes from that is uh, that players sometimes will respond in the middle of a fight. Yeah. And that's just not fun for them. It's fun for the person who's already shooting in that direction and you just spot in front of them and they die. Of course. So, yes. so the dynamic wasn't great. The aesthetic out of it is it's not fun for some players. That's yeah. that's, that's the, the layer that comes out of the dynamic. So you add another rule. You cannot spawn wherever uh, too close to another player. Mm -hmm. So in the map that you generated right now, there's one respawn point that happens to be really far from almost everybody else. You just put it there. It's really far. That mm -hmm. should be a good one, right? Unfortunately, it's within line of sight of another uh, area mm -hmm. where if I had a sniper rifle, that one will almost always be the furthest spawn point from anyone else. So if you die, I could keep sniping you over and over because you'll keep respawning at the furthest spawn point than anyone else. You just have to wait until that happens. And then the dynamic ends up being that you're spawn camping. You're allowing sp I was going to say spawn camping is done by the respawn systems designers. Yes. <laughs> Come on, guys. We're looking at you. But th this is this is kind of how it, it plays out. Like people are yeah. like, oh, why did the designers do this? Yeah. The designers didn't do that. What they did is they put a set of rules in play. The dynamics of those rules caused something to happen. If they didn't play test it enough and try out those scenarios, they won't know that happened. They, but the, 
It's already in her, but now you're in, because this is actually a question I was going to ask a little further down the line, which is going to be the evolution of game systems, because I know that's been your focus, but exactly what you're saying, right? No, they don't purposefully design in that issue, right? But yeah. have you never dealt with, say, when you were working on games 10 years ago, people who were systematically trying to break the game. Do you see what I'm saying? When they're trying to force that spawn point, they're trying to get every single little advantage they have because yeah. gaming has become so competitive or for screen. So that wasn't anticipated before before it was like oh there's just a camping spot because it just happens to be do you in the design process have to think oh someone's going to try to loophole this and then you know what i mean you're, you're sort of a little bit more defensively coding is that uh, something that comes through a thousand percent uh, that is what all designers are trying to do but what yeah. i'm trying to illustrate is it's impossible to catch all of them yeah. it is just it is just too wide there's always going to be one dynamic that or, or multiple actually, maybe dozens, hundreds, some that are not yet discovered in even the most popular games that will be discovered 10 years from now or what have you. Okay. Just, uh, I'll give you a good example from, uh, do you know who Seth Killian is? You might not. Uh, do you play fighting familiar. games? I do. Yes. But so the Seth name sounds Killian, familiar. Seth Killian used to be uh, at Capcom. He worked on the Street Fighter 4 game and a few mm. other games probably. Um, and what he said, but when the game Street Fighter 4 was in arcades, um, when, like as soon as it had come out, um, people were starting to find imbalances in the characters, like yeah. you know, infinite combos and things like that. They mm. patched it, they fixed it, but a lot of people are complaining, like, how could the designers do this? And Seth explained they have other than the production team, like proper, like the people who are actually coding and designing yeah. the game system, they have a separate team that's part of the dev team that are like paid playtesters. Yeah. They have about 60 of them. And they had been playing that game, I if I, I don't remember the timing exactly, but for about two years, full-time. This is their job. They're yeah. playing the game full-time. They're some of the best players in the world. At the time, they're the best players of, in yeah. the world of that game. But the, like in general, they're some of the best fighting game players in the world mm -hmm. who are these playtesters. They're incredible. They have in, intimate knowledge of the, the systems, unlike other players. They can actually look at the code and see things. So they could test things even at a more a higher fidelity than regular people. And their okay. job is to find these infinites and these problems. Yeah. 60 people over two years. How long do you think it'll take for the general population to have more playtime than these 60 people once a game shifts? Probably the week, first week if the game's popular. Two hours. Wow. By the time the game launches, two hours later, the general population has had more playtime than these 60 playtesters have had. Within three hours, it's more than the entire dev team has had. So yes, by the end of that day, you're going to find things that they couldn't find. It is impossible not to. The more popular the game is, the more competitive the game is, there's more there's an advantage for people to find these uh, loopholes, the, like, the more possible it's going to be. And right now we're using so much tech to try to simulate this. There's telemetry that you know has heat zones to see, like, AI is playing these games nonstop. Yeah. Sometimes we have playtesters and we, we don't even ask them questions. We see where they die and what yeah. they die to. And we get that data while the games are live, while the games are in beta. And even then you can't catch everything. The game, games are complex, far more complex than they were 20 years ago to, to levels that if people don't show you behind the curtains, if you don't see the rules and the wireframes that are in effect, you cannot comprehend how complex they are. Which is something that now has like, and, and you're right, which is that the fundamental change in cost and complexity of making games 
has probably gone up 10, 20 fold in the last 10 years, just yep. based on technological advancement. But the price on games, the level of people working on the games, the et cetera, that hasn't really matched up fundamentally as well. It hasn't adjusted. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So now you're dealing with this thing where people have expectations. A lot of this complaint, oh, games aren't like they used to be. But that's because, like you said, they were more limited in scope. They had a teams that were adapted and there wasn't infinite variables to take into account. Is it possible to create a structure of development that allows for some of these things? Is it more people that allows a little bit more of it to be tackled? Or is it just inherently part of the game development process that after within two hours, more people will have played than we've tested this entire time? Is that just uh, the reality that has to be accepted? Uh, like I, I can't see into the future. So I don't know if someone's going to develop this tech that nobody has conceived of right now that's going to solve this problem in a, in a way that's, you know, feels magical to us now. Because, you know, yeah. technology that, that's advanced enough feels like magic to the people before it. We all know that. Uh, beyond that, I just don't think it's a solvable problem. And I think people have to stop focusing on that. Uh, I, there's diminishing returns that you get from adding more money and more people to try to test a thing. Um, yeah, so like, I, I don't think it's going to be cost efficient to keep trying to tackle this problem to try to achieve uh, perfection. You're never going to achieve perfection. Never gonna uh, it's it, like, it's just the way that it's set up. Like everything is dependent on everything else. So if you have an open world game, just an open world game, and you're like, I don't understand how did uh, the the designers not realize that this collision is preventing me from, you know, in, in a smooth way accessing this other path. They yeah. could, didn't they, weren't they working on this game for five years? Yeah, but like maybe there was a change that was checked in in the last three hours before that was played. How are you going to play test this whole thing? You're play testing for so long and you made another fix to another thing that caused this problem. Like, it is impossible to catch it. And the problem with a lot of the reviewers and the sort of language around these review systems isn't to allow for humanity in it to be like, maybe someone was just human a day and just was like, oh shit, my bad. I completely forgot and let that go. And then a lot, because now we can fix it, et cetera. That sort of relation, and that's what it is. A lot has shifted on, on all the different aspects of gaming from the sales, the popularity, streaming, development, et cetera. That evolution has affected a lot of people, minus the people who are developing. The people who are developing are still doing the same stuff. Their jobs are just harder with more stress and more variables, and there's not a lot of money. So now that I can bring it in. So now pull, stepping back just a little bit, what is it about video games that makes you prefer them to? That's an awesome mug. That prefers. Thank you. That makes you prefer <laughs> it's them an incredible to, mug, right? Yeah, so I, I saw it like coming up on the screen a little bit. It just caught my question. I was like, oh, that's a cool mug. Um, <laughs> that you. makes you prefer them to other mediums, uh, whether it's reading or, but you could love all three of them, but is video games your favorite? Yes, it is my favorite. I'm very biased. I work in the field that I want to work in. I love games in general, like uh, video games in particular, but I love board games and card games and any kind of experimental games. Uh, I love play in general, but I also love comic books. Like, I don't know if you see, I have a huge, that's a yes, board game collection. I have a comic book collection. Actually, a comic book, I'd have to turn the camera over there. That's my bookshelf, Ooh, some of the comics. Nice. I have more yeah, upstairs in our study. Yeah, <laughs> I like I, I I geek out over all of these entertainment fields, like uh, like movies, of course, and uh, music, everything like that. So I love them all. Uh, what I love the most about video games, and it's not about a competition; these things can coexist, and I'm going to enjoy them all, all the time. But I like it's unique in one way. When you watch a movie, 
you always say such and such character if you're retelling the story such and such character did this such and such character did that if you uh read a comic book such and such character did that if you read a novel such and such character did that if you play a game you say i it's the only medium where you place yourself in it because of that level of interactivity so you get that level of agency where you don't get it from arguably anywhere else there were read your like uh what was it choose your own adventure books yeah, or something, your, something yeah, the i would argue that those are not books those are games but you know that's my interesting argument. 100%. yeah i think there's a fallacy in the language where we say i read that book but really you played that game the game was yeah. just in the format of a book that's 100%. all it was um but like regardless put that aside that's that right. argument aside that's a great that's a great to, point <laughs> thank you uh it's that that makes games my favorite medium and the one that you could actually put the person in it like even if i made a vr movie and you were in the the movie and you actually saw an arm stick out and do things i would argue that you wouldn't say i because you didn't have agency over those actions you were just seeing the action from a different vantage point 100%. it's that it's that interactivity that lets us actually feel more than any other medium so it has a, a lot more potential absolutely 100%. that's that's interesting you mentioned because that's why you said over the course of the pandemic when movies and tv started to be boring there's only so much you can passively consume your entertainment but to be more actively involved in it or re responsible for it increases uh engagement which is why i never understood why people thought that narrative games were were a thing of the past when I was like, if you continue building on these, uh, they'll keep growing. I actually but haven't heard the argument that movies and TVs were more boring during the pandemic. I think entertainment in a whole saved us because we were locked away from seeing people in general. Uh, I My consumption of entertainment of all types just skyrocketed during the pandemic. So maybe also, the, the- But gaming also felt like it created the one place, like social, like people forget that it's a social medium yeah. now, right? It's and so between, like, hey, we could be on a phone call. We could be playing a game, having the same conversation. And that's true. If, and it's the same. And that connection is just, and guys are guys. So we're not going to call yeah. each other. Hey, what's up? Let's play a game and have the same conversation. Yeah. That, uh, we that's actually, we did something similar, uh, me and a group of friends. Uh, I didn't know about this feature before, but you could have got a plugin for Chrome that allows you to sync your Netflix movies with the people. I think it's called Netflix Party or something like that, Ooh. where you can you have a chat and you have the movie playing. And if you pause it, you pause it for everyone. So everyone takes bathroom breaks or anything like that. Okay. You're at the same point. Uh, you could talk, uh, like, you know, I think we use Discord to talk over it, okay. but we'd watch movies together. We simulated that we're going to watch a movie at someone's house, you know, yeah. less so movie because you're usually generally quiet in movie theaters. But it's, but, like, you know, it's like a multiplayer movie. Yeah, almost like it's it's really, it re like really that was a, a feature that was available before the pandemic. And I think nobody cared. And then during the pandemic, a few people started saying, hey, now there's a use for this because we can't just go over to someone's house. And, exactly. and watch a movie together yeah and so that that's funny how like so then that's that's interesting now and i move forward to your own place where you're a big gamer but you feel your personality very unique compared to people Thank i've spoken you. with in, in gaming and some of the interviews i listen to uh if anyone wants to listen to fun smith fireside chat ozama gives some really wonderful management advice but thank you how did you find your way into games you always had a passion for it but was it a straight line but 
Thanks. No, uh, the, it's actually uh, a, a weird story. Uh, I've made a game since I was extremely young. I used to make board games and card games when I remember I was, when I was, I still don't know the age. I asked my parents, are they giving me different ranges? They're like, oh yeah, you were like nine, you were 12. I don't remember. Uh, but I asked my dad to bring home an empty pizza box. And my dad was used to, I, I was very creative as a kid. I made things all the time from different things. So he didn't question it at that point. He's like, whatever, you want an empty pizza box, I'll bring you an empty pizza box. So he went, ordered pizza, asked them to give them an empty box. The box came home and I made a board game inside the pizza box. Mm. And I thought it was incredibly clever because it was the box and the game. Mm. And it had pop-up art. Like it had like trees that came up when, you know, and if you close the box, they went back down. The board game itself wasn't that great. It was like Snakes and Ladders Plus. Like it had a, like a few action cards that you played or whatever like that. Uh, but that the packaging is what I was proud of because it was yeah. the box and the game at the same time. I had never seen something like that before. Uh, and I was super happy about it. So I was making games since I was really young. And when I started getting a computer, I started making maps for, for um, different levels of, of different games. Like I made StarCraft doom uh duke nukem whatever had a map editor at the time mm -hmm. um it, whether it was official or not i found a way to like you know make my own maps oh, in it okay. and um i wanted to be an architect which was a, still a creative field but you know yeah. a little bit delving more into engineering um i wanted to be an architect i changed my mind for reasons that i won't go into and i was a little sad so my dad was like okay well, well what do you want to do I said, I thought about it. I didn't have a plan B. I was like architect or bust. Yeah. And now I didn't have a plan A either. Um, I thought about it. And I said, look, I love entertainment in general, like comic books, movies. Uh, back then it was VHS tapes, yeah, right? was, Blockbuster. Yeah, back in the days. Uh, yes. So I told him, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was actually a petroleum engineer when we were in Iraq. And then when we moved to Canada, he became an entrepreneur. Because like in Montreal, there's no oil. But yeah, my uh, dad was a first generation immigrant. All, a lot of first immigration uh, generation immigrants are entrepreneurs by nature. Exactly. You have to make your own way, right? Yeah. Um, and so he, he had uh, shops, he had stores. And I told him, okay, I wanted to have a store. Uh, where I sell all my favorite things, board games and card games and video games and movies and comics and all this stuff. He said, okay, deal. Uh, I'm like, uh, he's like, I'll partner up with you. You you run the store, you know what to buy. You, you, you're the expert of that. And I'll, I'll fund it and I'll run it, the, you know, the other way, the financial way. I said, great. He's like, but you still have to go to university. I'm like, crap. <laughs> so while applying for university, I'm like, okay, what am I going to study? And I looked at a bunch of things I was interested in studying, but not working in. I narrowed it down to political science or history. Um, and I chose political science because it was something I was interested in, in studying, but I had zero intentions of working in. Uh, halfway the through- the same exact thing. Right? <laughs> I say political science, I, I, know, I was like, I already know what I could get in this, but it looked like the most interesting, but- Yes. A lot of my friends now, people are very confused asking why I have so many friends who are in politics, who are like in parliament and running mm -hmm. for positions. They're like, well, like, there are people I studied with at school. Yeah, we just went a different path. Um, and uh, so what ended up happening is I, I took some history classes as well. About halfway through, my dad's businesses failed. And he didn't have to say anything, but I knew at that point um, that I wasn't going to be able to have my store. And now I was stuck studying something that I was enjoying studying but I didn't have an interest in working in. After university, I worked as a shipping agent, which was somewhat related. I did customs paperwork and they like they they liked that I had a background in, in political science. Yeah. 
uh, it wasn't 100% relevant, but it was close enough. I just didn't want to work in politics, right? So this was close enough. I did that for about a year, but it was really tough because I kept traveling and missing my friends, like weddings and things like that, because it was like you, you went from port to port to meet captains on ships and you just were never home. After that, I was like, what now? Um, one of the things I used to do for fun in the past is uh, I picked up a book called Learn How to Make Websites in 21 Days. Um, and I read it over a weekend and started making websites at, at the end of that weekend. And I made a few websites for my dad's businesses. Um, and then his friends asked me to make websites for that. So I was 14 years old or 15 at that point. I was making you know a little bit of money on the side, making websites for these small shops. Um, so I'm like, I could do that. I know how to do it already. And so I started, you know, freelance graphic web design company. Um, wasn't very good at the company part, but it was pretty good at the, you know, the other part. The, the building part. Exactly. That is and, the company part, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't really good at collecting money and charging a fair wage is what I should say. So I had, to supplement, <laughs> right? I had to supplement my income a lot by like picking up tech, tech support jobs or whatever I had to, whatever I didn't have contracts in between. And I did that for like three years. Um, but I learned Flash, which allowed me to make Flash games. These are the first standalone video games I made before I used to make either board games or card games or levels for existing games. But now I, I knew, uh, uh, you know, I had a tool that I, I allowed me to make my own video games from start to finish. They were pretty terrible, but, you know. I'm, I'm the Newgrounds generation. Flash games yeah. are amazing regardless of the There quality. you go. You might have even played some of my games. I don't even remember amazing. what they are anymore. That was like a, a lifetime ago. But uh, I made like, you know, a game that at the time looked like Flappy Birds, except, you know, that's funny. Uh, but it was way before Flappy Birds, but it, no, was, it, it was, yeah, exactly. Uh, I made a few games like that. And, um, but I still didn't consider, like, think about it. I still didn't consider a career in making games until one of my friends, this Palestinian guy called Ahmed Saad, who studied history. So we had some overlapping classes because I studied a little bit of history. Uh, met him at, uh, in college. He played on, uh, one of my floor hockey teams uh, at one point. That's how I got to know him. Uh, he got a job as a game designer in a roundabout way. So what ended up he was we, like we played video games together. We we played Ultima Online together. We played a lot of. We were both like heavy heavy duty gamers. Um, and at one point, he had an opportunity because he was studying history to edit um, a uh, a history of game design book. While he was editing that book, he was actually, to the authors, offering suggestions and saying, oh, we could talk about this story, because he knew about the world of video games, because he was a heavy gamer. And they're like, hey, you, you know a lot about this. Would you like a job as a game design, a junior game designer? That's and awesome. he, ex he got that job because like of his knowledge. When he did, it just unlocked something in my head. And all of a sudden, I saw the opportunity, the potential of having that career. I never even considered it before. So, and I had a portfolio. That's the thing. I already had games that I made. Um, so he helped me rework that portfolio and make the games actually good. Because now that he was a junior game designer, he he had, like, I was a thousand percent self-taught, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. didn't, never even read a game design book at this point. I just made things. Um, and he was a few steps ahead of me. So he showed me how to make a good portfolio. I applied to so many jobs and I got one interview. And that one interview landed me the job. And that's a that's a separate story if you want to hear about it too, you, you could ask. But otherwise, 
it was that was my path to games it was a very different path than most people uh, and to me that's why representation is so important because until i saw someone of my like a similar background heritage in me uh, land a job like this i never even considered it so i know this is real i lived that experience uh, as someone with similar, like my name's um, my family is from Pakistan, so I'm Muslim, raised Muslim too. And so I, I was actually going to ask, like you, you had all the skill sets, you had all the knowledge, but you still didn't see the career path in gaming. I and literally I wrote here, I was like, was that culture as a limiter? Because like you know, through and this is gonna now we're gonna push into a little bit of diversity in gaming. Our culture sort of has a, a cautionary conservative mindset, right? You have. Yeah you have medicine you have engineering you have law right and yeah you're presumed as political science of going into law right yeah and so if you're not going to law then it's what are you doing you didn't but even as you're talking about it, and so now you're not seeing it as a reality was there because no one else you knew existed as a game developer right yeah so now you got it and you get your first job that is sort of the breaking point of how we increase diversity inclusion in gaming right but now i would say like organically right so you were able to find your organic pathway and so say we want to expand the ability to in create in more inclusivity and diversity in gaming game development and more of these actual jobs because when you have the more productive creative jobs that's when the reflection comes out on the actual product versus making someone a marketing lead how is it possible to expand so that more people who maybe don't have a, like a tech background or a gaming background as or you know naturally or say like in your case you had someone where you're political science etc how do you bring in more people would be the specific question from backgrounds that aren't inherently tech science because they're still great game designers yes absolutely actually uh in a lot of ways they make your team better if you get people from uh, I, I, this is a, something that i care very much about i speak about a lot i advocate for and i'm not unique in the industry there's been a recent very big push to do this um one of the biggest problems is people when they hire for a cultural fit um that's a double-edged sword because you're hiring people who you would feel the rest of the team would be comfortable with and that often excludes people from other cultures or backgrounds because you know i i'm, I'm muslim too i don't drink alcohol uh, if if the company culture is very heavy on beer Fridays, I might be excluded from that job just for that reason alone. And that's just one example of yeah. many, many. 100%. Um, yeah, so basically there's a lot of initiatives that are being put into place in the gaming industry and the entertainment industry, um, uh, uh, you know, broadly. Uh, to educate people about these biases, everyone has biases. Like oh, it's a, like, and everyone has different kind of levels of privileges. So it's just to educate people so that they can see we need to invest in the future generation. So we need to actively hire juniors, especially who are from different backgrounds who might not have the same uh, traditional career paths in order to diversify your workforce, in order to fix a problem in the future. But that's what the major problem, because you already said it perfectly, which is they want to hire people that end up reinforcing the culture they have instead of expanding it. And you've already found that when you have a team of five different outlooks, you have every single thing that you need and everyone can know you don't have a lot of. And so that's them. I'm like, but these companies, right? They're not motivated to hire outside the traditional qualifications background for, for, for reasons that are almost understandable. You know, they're fearful. It's a lot of money, whatever the case is. But if you, before, when we were younger, I think it was access to technology that was the main inhibitor. 
which is like we said privileges for me privilege was if you were if your family and your parents had a computer and you were raised around the idea that computers are the future we're immigrants kids we're not really being raised in a technology heavy push right so we had one generation that didn't really jump in on an equal footing with everyone else just by nature of that but today's day and age i think access to technology has flattened a little bit yeah. Is there then something that was missed before in hiring people that's beyond culture fit that would expand it or hiring non-traditional backgrounds? Like, is there an organic way to go about this? Yeah, it's that's a very difficult question to answer in a very like in a very short way because basically every region has its own uh, its own challenges when it comes to this. You said that access to technology, you know, find a bit. I agree. In the West, even yes. among immigrants in the West, yes. but we're, if you're looking globally, I mean, to a certain degree, you could still argue it flattened a little bit, but not a lot. There's still a huge discrepancy between what uh, people have access to in, in terms of technology. Uh, the cost of a, of a computer, for example, is still prohibitive. Uh, and you don't have a lot of engines that you could work on, uh, on on your phone to make games on your phone. And even the ones that do generally are low fidelity. They make yeah. a certain type of game that you can make on your phone. The technology right now that the world has access to more than anything else are, are mobile phones, smartphones. Mobile, and that, yeah. that helps. It gives them access to information and what like. But to make games, it's so much easier to do it on a computer. And computer access though it increased it's not the same the other issue the major issue from other regions specifically uh is anything to do with like legal legal issues like uh uh borders visas that kind of uh -huh. thing um it it's much more complex even if it ends up being cheaper it's much more complex to hire someone who is very talented from Pakistan, for example, and try to get them a visa so that they could move to the States, then it would be to hire someone from England and have them move to the States. Just that reality is really hard to get over. Um, and the second is the hubs already have huge talent pools and as such are more likely to teach students in those schools and universities and pass on those knowledge simply because of you know this supply and demand there's more people who can have that information so if you look at other parts of the world uh, even if they have university programs they rarely have people who have worked in the like the quality of the education will generally be weaker but even the availability of those programs is weaker and the the financially people are able to afford them is less so a lot of people who are in other countries are forced to learn on their own and some people yeah. do better for that than not and thankfully, a lot of that knowledge is available right now on, on the internet. Uh, yeah. But all of these things are layered on top of each other. So the access is not even, it's not equal. What um, do you see on like a five to 10 year old? So you would say like game development hubs, I would say primarily like say US, say in, in, in China, and there's a few in the UK, Japan, about yeah. Japan, of course. Canada but like now you have in say the MENA countries, right? So that's where we're really sort of focused on is the Middle East, North Africa, et cetera. Yeah. When you're when you're trying to reach those, and like you're saying, the, the even if they have schools, the access because mobile technology is ninety percent of the global internet activity. It's not going to be so much computers. Is it like a function of something like CD Project, where you're hoping that a company can grow, like in the middle of a not nowhere because Poland's not nowhere, but a country, say in Egypt or somewhere Iraq, can end up turning translation into game dev, which ends up popping up. That's just the hope. Is that just sort of the I mean, from your experience as in the industry itself? 
Yeah, it's already happening. I won't mention companies specifically, but there are companies that opened up shops in, for example, Casablanca in, in Morocco. Uh, and when they open up in those areas, even if it's for a specific thing, like you mentioned, localization or QA or something like that, just that access to the devs will allow uh, you know some people to transition into more dev-related jobs which would uh, allow them hopefully to gain enough knowledge to branch out and start their own things. And then it starts from there. Uh, that's that's one of the ways that it does spread around the world as well. Um, is it the best way would be, and I haven't really seen this, the best way would be for a company to just invest in growing a, a an industry, you know, like growing a branch in another country yeah. to make them devs and teach them how to do it. Uh, that like the, the companies are not like capitalism. They're not financially incentivized to do that. Generally, it's a big investment. It happens. It's not that it didn't happen. I've seen it before. Yeah. Um, there, like there are Ubisoft, for example, ha, has uh, branches in Shanghai and has branches in, in Chengdu that they opened. It's not, you know, uh, they opened it initially to be like a co-dev and eventually made, give them their own projects. That does happen. It's rare. Uh, and if more companies would do that, I think that would be healthier. But then the long game for me is that eventually the people who learn there will branch off and start their own things because you need yeah. to have, you know, like not to be vassal uh, <laughs> vassal uh, entities, but to yeah. actually see the creativity that could come out from those regions. But I think it's like you said, I think a lot of those people who, who might not have traditional access need the opportunity in a, in a traditional organization to learn the skill set so that when they leave, they know how this is run, how to do it. And then they can just actually do it. We talked about do their vision part and then have some, and then still know the company part. Cause I think understanding the business part of game dev ends up becoming almost harder than the natural development part for, for younger people. Yes. But why, why have you not seen say like companies invest in schools, right? So if you do like a two year program through this and then it ties you in, there's no like feeder programs for yeah, anywhere so either. Double-edged sword. It does exist. I have seen it before. There was uh, a company in Montreal that started off uh, a, uh, a a kind of an agreement between them and the government that they would uh, send their workers to teach at uh, a university level and or a college level, and then funnel those employees into their like those potential the students into employees into their company um the problem with that is they're incentivized to lie i'm sorry to put it that bluntly but the truth is i've been on those panels i've seen them before and they say yeah 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 train more people like of these disciplines when in reality they are saturated with those disciplines. They don't really care because they don't lose anything out of getting the government to train more people. If they just want a couple of students from the top to, to the most talented students and they want them to come across. Yeah. So they'll just say yes. They'll never say no, don't train these people. Yeah, they'll never say it. Um, and uh, that, that is, you know, I don't trust corporations in general, like in, in the capitalist capital world, they're just going to do whatever it is. And the hope is that there's like the invisible hand of your self-interest ends up yeah. having subsequent positive effects. But like yeah. you said, there's that double-edged sword of they just sort of. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is hard to solve. It's really hard to solve because even if the government creates a lobby of people who they consult with uh, in order to make their decisions, 
those people are generally going to be from those companies who are going to give them answers that are going to serve the interests of those companies. How mm. do you solve that? How do you find people who are actually alt- altruistic and who are just trying to do something that's good for the the, the people in general, the, the industry as a whole, and not serve the interests of a specific company? That's very tough to screw. That's my, my, and that's what we're talking about, where the idea that the self-interest is that they find the developers that they need to keep their company running yeah. in different areas. And it's like, well, why don't you just motivate yourself to just invest in the people that you'll need anyway, right? And yeah. it's not like, hey, they don't want, it's like, it's, you need to invest in a we wide. We see quarters, we see short-term rewards and we don't see long-term and that every decision is made in the short-term and, that's a that's a big that's problem. that's what scares me a little bit do you think now like you know there's a lot and again you have to speak about some of these things specifically but there's a lot of consolidation happening in the industry and when you have consolidation it becomes i don't want to call it monopolistic but when you limit the amount of companies you limit the type of people who are working in the industry as well is there a fear because you're coming from the indie sphere and you might be working at a bigger place now but your history is not from there is there a fear that you see it and you're like oh man this is going to hurt a lot of gamers if we don't open up the doors or our markets to indies like yeah i know there's a big push for indies but still even in a consolidation if there's three big companies and you have to release on those three you're a little bit in trouble yeah. um i'm i'm actually like i've i've done both i've worked at ubisoft warner brothers and now at blizzard so i've done the triple a's and i've worked at much smaller places uh, in the past as well so I, i've been in both sides of the spectrum and uh i won't lie i'm actually pretty scared for indies going forward i th- i think the bigger these big companies get the more they're going to drown out um the the small indies even if they have things in place that will help indies there's just you know it's so much noise there's so many people out there i don't even know if this is solvable like how like there's so many studios popping up so many games being released yeah how do you give visibility to everybody how it's i don't know yeah that's that's the problem where i'm like i'm hopeful that you know the the companies a playstation nintendo they have positive intentions because it's in their interest to increase the player base as well but if you're, do you see some young kid being like, I'm going to be an indie dev? Do you have to sit them down and be like, you know, you have to understand the practical financial yeah. realities? Is that a conversation had more often with people? Like, so I, I authored the independent game design program at Dawson College and I was a coordinator for the program for many years. Um, and in doing so, I had to give, uh, or I, I used to give info sessions for people who want to get into the program. Um, and our info sessions, we were told by the administration, were different than any other info sessions in the college. Every other info session was, this is a great career. You want to come to this, uh, you know, like, look at all the amazing things that our former students have done. Our info sessions were, do you like playing games or do you like making them? Because those two things are different, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> great question. Yeah. You can, you can like playing games and not like making them. Do you understand the harsh realities that are uh, ahead of you? Do you understand how many people want to get into this? Do you do you want to see what our placement rates are? They're actually uh, pretty good compared to some of the other schools in the city and pretty bad compared to almost every other discipline other than like music or something, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, or, or if you want to, you know, be a professional athlete, I guess. No, it's, <laughs> like time, it's almost in more numbers when you really it, it, think about it. It's pretty rough. It's pretty yeah. rough and it's getting rougher uh, because it is a passion industry. It's an industry that a lot of people want to take the smaller salary to work in because they like it uh, for yeah. X, Y, and Z reasons. And that's dangerous. That's a 
very dangerous position to be in because that gives leverage to the companies. Uh, and as a result, you see it's almost impossible to land your first job. Um, but also, once you make it you know, to a certain degree of experience, you have people throwing jobs at you because nobody makes it that far along. Uh, like once you get to the five-year mark, people are actively looking for, for you because, you know, you're a more intermediate level. Once you reach senior, uh, you know, like the, 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 yeah, the people are throwing jobs at you in general because very few people survive. The average uh, number of years that someone stays in the gaming industry is about five, which is about one production. They like it's almost push, like a push, lot. You get brought to a partner, you stay. If not, you just leave and you try you to find somewhere else. Generally, people work on one big production, they burn out and they leave the industry. Um, that's a, a bit like, and that's the average is five. So actually a lot of people leave after a year or two that they know bad of it they're like wow this is way too much work or not enough pay or whatever it is we yeah. have a lot of problems within the industry so anyone who i have 15 years in the industry i when i had 12 years um i was invited to be on a panel at gdc the game developers conference that was called the long run for people who are veterans i only had 12 years of experience it's not that long compared to other fields but that was enough for me to be considered a veteran in the industry three years ago. Would you call, would you say that 12 years is enough because the technology has changed so that like in the 12 years, the standardized technology you become a master at, but the 10 years prior to that, it was a little bit different. And so the data technology you got to skip and you got to learn the more useful ones. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, because uh, like really you just build on other uh, other foundation. Everything that you learn will help you learn the next thing uh, anyway. So it's not so much a factor of um, of the tech. It's more a factor of uh, how many people are leaving and who's left and the ratio of that. So basically all the big companies are uh, fighting for a top talent because there's Every year, there's fewer and fewer people who who stay in the industry. It's more of that than anything. How else. often do you? So now you've come up, and so say you're like 15 years. How often as these people leave sort of like positions, do you have to look outside of gaming? Is it always within gaming that like the mid tier search is being done? Because if you're assuming people are leaving earlier, like, and I mean, I, I ask that because of the idea of like. How many people do you see on your day to day at the same equal position level as you who have come from a similar mindset as you say outside of gaming and who have a little bit more perspective or is everyone around you just career? Um, it's very hard to answer that question because it depends on when like juniors generally often come from other industries. That's just mm -hmm. how it is. Uh, but the further you get in seniority, the more you need, um, okay, let me give you an example with, with uh, th that might illustrate this. One of my friends uh, who I worked with at Ubisoft, brilliant guy, he was, um, for over 20 years, he was writing D&D campaigns professionally. Like he was a professional writer and a game designer, but not a video game designer. When he wanted to get the job at Ubisoft, they looked at his video game experience and they said, you have zero. So if you get this job, even though we really believe you'll do well at it, you'll, you're starting off as a junior with a junior salary and junior mm -hmm. benefits and junior role. This, like, I knew the guy. I I know he's way, like, he's a heavy hitter and yeah. he can learn the rest of the things, but he doesn't have it on paper. Yeah. Uh, and I know that if we hired him, he would excel because he has... 20 years of storytelling experience and game systems experience. You just yeah. doesn't have the tech background for it. But that is a risk 
for the company. And so the company or the people who are involved in the hiring process in that situation were like, look, we, we're, we're not willing to take this risk in this situation. Uh, the further you're looking for someone in seniority, the more that conversation is going to happen for better or worse, whether you hate it or like it, it's just going to happen. They're going to compare people, someone who shipped two video games and has eight years of experience with someone who made 20 years of, of, of pen and paper games. And they're going to take the eight years because it's, it's a safer but it's bet. It's so confusing because even as you talk about your system design, you know, systems design, it's just engineering. It's simple operations and systems. So if someone has the paper pen knowledge, like that's what I don't understand. Like that to me is equal levels of experience. If they ship two it's games, it's not that simple. It really isn't because if you design systems, I, I do. I, I teach board games and card games as well, yeah. and I teach video games. It is not that simple. The the levels of systems that are that come into play in video games compared to levels of systems that come into play in board games, they're not the same. The, in board games, everything is exposed. All the information has to be exposed. Everyone sees everything. In video games, there are things that are just hidden. Uh, like there, there, there are layers in play. It's not, yeah. it's not in, like, and even if you just say it's like engineering, games these days are far more complex than most other software. Far more because they have so many layers of things that come into play with each other, that interact with each other. The other systems don't, the other uh, software don't have to have. Like there's a physics layer that no other software has to deal with that could cause so many different bugs and interact literally with every other system. Like it's not the same. You need to have that level of experience and, and uh, to a certain degree. But that's why I'm saying in this one particular situation, I do agree that the person who has 20 years of experience could have learned those other skills because their other skills made up for it. The hiring panel didn't agree and they offered him a junior position instead. But at so top he, level, that, that thinking goes down to even the junior positions where if the person at times has like that skill set, and I don't mean that like, yeah, they have the thinking for the board game drawings, right? But the idea of that critical thinking is adaptable is to me something that maybe some of the game development people could learn and find a lot of new talent if they took that mindset of a certain criteria of thinking is adaptable. It's not always going to be one-to-one -one, and that person might be a little less. There might be someone who's better, but unless you take risk, even at a lower level, if the mindset at top is there, do you at the bottom, it's not probably not much different. Yeah, well, I 100% agree with you that at junior level, it's much less risk because generally the stakes are lower. But at the junior level, there's a lot more competition. That's the basic line is, yeah, you could find that person, but why would you take a risk on them when you could find someone else who has exactly the same qualification, plus a technical layer, plus has shipped a whole bunch of student projects. And this is the issues with diversity in gaming, where it's like that yeah. person, unless they get that door open, they're never going to have the one game, two games to their names, and they're not going to be able to pass on it to the next person. And so we're yeah. going to keep getting a repeat cycle until someone tries to break it, but the break involves risk, not... Yeah. So much, yeah. hey, we made a program and everyone should get educated. And you're like, someone's going to get hired from that. You can't say it. It's important. You still want yeah. more people interactive involved. But where's the actual tangible benefit lines that we could actually create? It feels like some of those ones, they, they inherently are risky. Yeah. Anyway, either way, like what you're saying is true. The yeah. uh, at the end of the day, uh, there is it's, there are campaigns that I'm saying that uh, pe people are putting into place to try to educate people on this, and hopefully change will come. But there is a lot working against it, so change is going to be slow. But the more people from diverse backgrounds who make it into games, yeah. uh, the more people they're going to hire that 
are from other diverse backgrounds. See, that's the interesting thing that I find is that marginalized people tend to hire other marginalized people, even people who are not from the same marginalized backgrounds as them, still other marginalized people because they understand that struggle and that reality. 100%. And then, uh, you know, it it, it creates a a, a unique opportunity to create a a lineage of of expansion. And so even for the people who make it, like you, it's very important and it's the most important actually once they're in, they continue championing and continuing as they move up a ladder, making sure that that's heard and they don't say, oh, I'm in here, so I'm good. And so diversity, I mean, diversity is nice, but I got in. So apparently there's diversity and it's like diversity is opening the door, pulling up the next person. It's not getting in there yourself, but uh, you do all that and it's pretty awesome and appreciated. We all do our best. <laughs> um, well, you know, well, for the people who make it specifically into some of these more harder industries, their their voice is that much louder. I think about like Cal Penn back in the day or Asif Mandvi, if you're watching television shows and you see him, you're like, oh, I, look, he made it. I can too. And so that's always a, a great feeling. But I've already had you for here for an hour. And so I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your Sunday. And so I'll ask you one one or two more questions to, to wrap this up. Um, okay. What is your favorite video game or game series of all time it's an impossible question to answer uh because each era of me being like a child uh, in my teens an adult working in the industry like i look at games in a completely different way but i will i'll tell you the two games or uh, which are both series that made me want to become a game designer more than anything else uh, they're the Street Fighter series because I love the backgrounds of the characters and like the elegance of just having two characters on screen and so many dynamics that could come from them. And the Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VI specifically, uh, which is my favorite RPG of all time, uh, which uh, like showed how much you could do with so little. Like it was an epic story, an epic RPG where they give players so much agency and it's just a few pixels moving on a screen from back then, which was gorgeous back then. I look at it now, I'm like, how did they fill my head with so many incredible moments with so little processing power? That is incredible. But like, I could could give you another 10 answers and they'd all be true. I love games too much. When you get to that level of love, it's super hard to like, you know. It's it's like your books. It's like, you know, let me list you a few, but I like that. The two that got you into game design, because I do think that idea right there, which is how do I have so much emotion from this, especially when you look back. Um, And then I guess it would be now similar to that one, but it's uh, if you could choose any form of art, book, movie, play, and turn it into a video game, what would it be? So you're not talking about a specific uh, piece of entertainment. You're talking about in general? Yeah, any form of art you could turn into a game. Say, I love this short story. I want to turn it into a game. If you love a play, you think that would make a great game. Any of them. It's actually, games are so inherently different than all those other like forms of art. Uh, that the starting point really doesn't matter. It's what you end up with. How you would translate them. Uh, so what's so your favorite childhood book? And do you ever see it and say, wow, I can't believe they never made a video game out of this? Oh, so you're talking yeah. about a specific franchise. Yeah. Which franchise yeah. would I love to see I, a game made out of? Yeah. Uh, that's your a, favorite piece of media. Like, that's what it is. Like, oh, I love uh, this story. God, it would be great if it was a video game. That is a very... It's like most of the ones that I've loved from being a kid have become video games. So which one... That is a really tough question to answer. 
And because, we always uh, drop this one at the complete end, and everyone's like, "Shit, you can tell me I went ahead of time," and I'm like, "Surprise!" Yeah, so we but... had. I'm trying to think of some of our past answers. We had, um, we had a, someone say they wanted a Hayao Miyazaki movie, yeah, uh, a video game. Yeah. Uh, someone said Ed, Ed, and Eddie. If you remember that TV show, the video <laughs> yes. game of that. I do. Okay, I don't know if a game exists for this, but I really liked the Gargoyles Disney animation when I was uh, a kid. Uh, and now I'm embarrassed to 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 realize I don't know if, if they've ever made it. There was game one from. Gargoyles game that was on Super Nintendo. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well, same same, I, same generation, man. So yeah, I know it. Then yeah. I have not played that. But if I had the opportunity to make a Gargoyles game today, I would definitely. Right. You remember that era? That's like the Aladdin game at all. Yes, the Aladdin was great. I played the Lion King one. I played. Now that you mention it, I do remember the the, the I think the box of the Gargoyles, but I've never played it. So yeah. Yeah. it's uh, just funny funny time period, man. So yeah. we, we grew. Same I, line, so. absolutely that's a tough question to end on because that's yeah. something i would actually think about for hours before i give it and now time. you think about it and if you come up with it just shoot me a message and i'm going to add an addendum to this one editing i'll be like we got an answer, answer. <laughs> that works for me yeah pop up at it over but all right awesome uh all right man it's it's been over an hour I, i've already chewed off your ear uh i really appreciate you taking the time uh coming on um Thank would you love for to have you me. on again if you're if you're never unopposed if you had a, a good time absolutely i had a great time just say one yeah absolutely and as you said uh in in one of your your old interviews you're like oh okay someone said thanks for being one of the good muslims and you're like what does that mean? <laughs> yep yep and i'm gonna say that to you i was like thanks for being one of the good muslims too well, i was like well, you I Rami, from, me i met all come, the muslims coming in the game from a muslim it's a little bit different right <laughs> <laughs> thank you no problem. Uh, so thank you again. Really look forward to it. Look forward to sharing this. And um, thanks for being kind enough taking the time, man. Likewise. Thanks again. Take care. Have a great one. Be well.